Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is Episode 77 with Andy Malinsky. Welcome to the As Told by Nomads podcast, where you'll learn how nomads, third culture kids, entrepreneurs, and leaders all over the world embrace their global identity and use their difference to make a difference. And now, having lived on four different continents, here's your host, Tyo Roxas. Welcome, everybody. Today I have with me Andy Molinsky. And Andy Molinsky is a professor of international management and organizational behavior at Brandeis University, University's International Business School, with a joint appointment in the Department of Psychology. He's also the author of the new book, Global Dexterity, How to Adapt Behavior Across Cultures Without Losing Yourself in the Process. Andy received his PhD in organizational behavior and master's in psychology in Harvard University. Andy's current work focuses on the challenges people face when adapting behavior in foreign cultural settings as uh, researchers explore the dynamics of psychologically demanding tasks, including necessary evils and organizational change. So I'm pretty excited to have him on the show because that's pretty much in line with all that we talk about at the As Told by Nomads podcast. So welcome, Andy. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So you, you have this book about global dexterity. I have two questions. Um, how did you come up with the term if you did, and then what is the book about? Sure, yeah, no, the, um, the, the book, uh, the, the, I came up with the term global dexterity because um, so much in the world of culture, international business is talked about cultural differences, but I think that the reality on the ground that people struggle with often isn't just understanding intellectually what the differences are, it's being able to adapt and adjust their behavior in light of those differences. So with that in mind, I wanted a title that captured the dynamic aspect of how people need to do global business, and that's where I came up with Global Dexterity. Um, the book is about the book's about understanding the challenges of global dexterity and how to overcome the challenges. It's written in a pretty user-friendly format uh, and gives very concrete tips about how anyone anywhere can learn to adapt and adjust their behavior across cultures 
without losing themselves in the process, which essentially means by staying authentic, not feeling disingenuous, because I find that in foreign cultures, sure, you can suppress who you are to try to act appropriately, but in the long term, that just doesn't work too well. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with that. And I guess one question that will immediately come to mind is, it's when people go from east to west or west to east where it seems to be completely different, how you said it's important to remain authentic how can they remain authentic um keeping gender differences and just um you know uh authority differences in, in mind how do you think that that that's something that people can work on because i imagine that's something that's difficult it is difficult uh, uh not always difficult by the way though um in in certain cases it's actually not difficult mm -hmm. uh there are some people who have personalities that aren't typical of what you might expect, right? Yeah, so okay. for, since I teach at a business school, international business school, and I've got lots of students, MBA students from, from Japan, Korea, China, and the stereotype is that they don't speak in class, they might not be very assertive, don't speak up, but I can tell you there are plenty of students who are, are against the stereotypes. <laughs> so, right, okay. So it's uh, so it's not 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 a, you know not everyone in every case, but yeah, you're right. I think there are a lot of situations that are very hard to do from east to west. And what I the core of my book is really about learning to customize and personalize your behavior. And what I mean by that is sort of the idea of like um, uh, imagine imagine that you're going to buy some clothes and you buy a pair of pants or a blouse or something at the store. Uh, usually, most of us, at least for me, I know, I can't just put on that pair of pants and it fits perfectly. I always have to have a tailor adjust it a little bit, right? Make little alterations right, right. so that it feels and fits just right for me. And I feel that that's a good metaphor for what people can do across cultures. They can find a way, oftentimes, uh, they can find a way so that they can be effective in that new setting, even if it's east to west, but still feel authentic. So they can sometimes create almost like a little bit of a blend or a hybrid between who they are, what they value, and what they need to do in a new culture. And if you think really hard about that and you use the tools that I talk about, you can make those blends, you can make those fusions, and it can be much easier than you think. Yeah, interesting. And and are there any any tips that you have for something like this? Because I I've seen some, I've read some of your articles, I've read a lot of them, and they're really good, by the way. And a lot of what I like the, about what you do is that you say, imagine a British guy goes to an American environment. So you really paint the picture and you put the paintbrush there so we can visualize this. But I guess what I'm asking is, are there any tips for say you're talking about Japanese students, say. Um, an international student coming into the United States from Asia or Africa or Europe or another country and them having to fit into a business setting um, as, as opposed to what they would do normally. So that's networking, getting more noticed, making themselves um, employable in an American setting. Yeah, so 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 in the book, I, I, the framework basically are the tips. I kind of arrange in four different like it's like stages. Mm -hmm. Like, let's say, and I, and I like to think about it in terms of a situation, because not all situations are the same. You know, some situations you walk into in a new culture actually fit pretty well. Uh, other situations you can really struggle with. So, uh, you know, I, I, always, I always base it by situation. But let's say you're, you're kind of up on a new situation that's, that's really challenging for you. The first step to me is to learn the rules of the road. Like, how, do you, how are you actually expected to act in this situation? And how is it different from how you would kind of naturally and comfortably act? And in the book, I have a way of doing that in, in terms of different, like, dimensions of, of behavior. So, like, how directly am I supposed to act in this situation? How assertively? How much enthusiasm am I supposed to show? And you can pretty easily, I have a chart, and you can pretty easily 
kind of look at the difference between you know your comfort zone, how you naturally do it, and how you need to do it in the situation. Sometimes people don't know because they're they're not familiar with the culture. That's where a mentor comes in, or someone who can kind of help guide you to understand what the norms are and how they might be different from what you're used to. Mm-hmm. And then and then it comes down to trying to figure out a way uh, to um, to to customize, to try to personalize it. So yeah. It's out of your comfort zone to be self-promotional. Let's say you come from India and you need to promote yourself. But are there ways, are there things that you could say, are there little ways that you can kind of alter what you say so that you're still, you still kind of toot your own horn a bit in the U.S. setting, but you still also stay, stay deferential? So one example, I know someone who, um, when he talks in an interview or a networking event about himself, which is really uncomfortable from an Indian perspective, at least from his Indian perspective, what he does is he talks about his, his own accomplishments but he always talks about the team as well or he talks about his own accomplishments but he says how proud he is that they actually help the organization so an American might not immediately think of those things right blending the team and the organization with your own individual accomplishments but for him that blend just sort of like almost like creating fusion cuisine and food like that blend ends up enabling him to be able to promote himself in a way that he wouldn't have otherwise and then kind of the last part of it is making it into muscle memory it's sort of like you know like sports players do this you know you you, hit, you kick a ball you like you're you're Leo Messi and you're trying to learn how to do like a really good free kick. Well, he doesn't just do it once. He practices it time and time again. Or you're a baseball pitcher and you're throwing the throwing a ball. You want to get that motion down over and over and over again. It's the same thing with your cultural behavior. You got to like, you got to make it your new normal. You got to practice and practice and practice. And over time, it can become more natural to you. So, I mean, that, that's basically like, the, that's the formula. And I find that it's actually, it's, it's pretty successful. Yeah, no, so... Observe the environment that you're in. Find a cultural a cultural mentor, so to speak, um, and practice, practice, practice. As you know, as this, like you said, you liken it to Lionel Messi, where you hone your craft. The more and more you do it, it becomes part of your muscle memory. And uh, something that I can say, you probably agree with, is that you know, making mistakes is part of the process, and it uh, oh. actually does help you grow. I mean, I. I can I can think of a few full pause that I've had myself, but it, <laughs> but I, I, it's that. Would you agree that that's part of the process? Absolutely, yeah. In fact, like I have a, I have a I have a one of one of the blogs I've done for Harvard Business Review. I talk about like the idea that you know faux pas and mistakes are inevitable, and you kind of have to figure out what your forgiveness strategy is going right. to be because it's naive to think that you're not going to make mistakes. The question is, is how are you judged when you do make them? Okay. So. You know, they of course they're part of the learning process too. But in terms of like how you're perceived, that's important too. You want to make sure that, you know that that uh, that you kind of find a way to cut yourself slack. Exactly. So when you do make a mistake, hopefully it won't be counted against you, or it will be seen by the other person as sort of a genuine, honest attempt to try to learn the new cultural norms. Um, that's how you want it to be perceived. Yeah, and the reason I love what you're saying is because you, you were basically saying fit it in without giving in. Yeah, you, you, you're you're not giving too much of yourself and losing yourself, but you're also fitting into the environment because you're aware of what's accepted and what's not. Um, and, and you don't, don't want to give in. You, yeah. it's like I think it's unrealistic. Like you know, sometimes people when they talk about crossing cultures or going into an environment out of their out of the ordinary, like sometimes you get like two pieces of advice. I hear like one extreme advice is like. You know, when in Rome, act like the Romans. Like, you kind of have to adapt exactly what the other group is doing. 
the other piece of advice at the total other end of the spectrum is, yeah, just be yourself and you'll be fine. You've got to just be yourself. I think both of those are naive. I think you need to find a middle ground where you can you can essentially be yourself or, or be enough of yourself, but at the same time, you're also accommodating to the new setting. Because if you don't, if you don't hit that middle ground, it's not going to work. Yeah, no, and, and that, that comes with the... The observation and obviously knowing a lot more about the uh, cultural landscape. The something you said earlier was finding a mentor. You have a piece about how being experienced doesn't automatically make you a great mentor. Can you elaborate on that and talk about maybe a process to find a cultural mentor? Yeah, I think a lot of times people who are experienced forget. You know, if you forget uh, how how challenging it was when you were first learning something. So sometimes very experienced mentors don't have the empathy of a, of a, of a, of, um, of a novice. Uh, I, I find that people also sometimes make mistakes when they're trying to find a mentor. They, they make the mistake between a mentor and a model. Like a model is, is where you go into a new setting and you watch how other people do it and then you kind of copy it in a way. Now, those are good, but you have to make sure that you have a bunch of different models so you don't like hone in on just one model, but you see a bunch of models and then you kind of pick and choose and see what fits with you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. See how they're active, maybe, but at the same time filter it, how, how it's going to fit with you. Um, I find that finding a mentor... Um, you know, a lot of a lot of organizations uh, assign mentors. I, I often find that that can work, but you know, organically, uh, finding a mentor a little bit more organically maybe creates a better fit. Yeah, and and the the organic ways would be was it be just going out there and talking to the locals, or what would be an organic? Yeah, like like finding like like for instance, I have a uh, an American executive who was in Taiwan, and he was trying. He was for a consumer products company, pretty high level executive, and he wanted a mentor, and he ended up. You know, he, he took a little bit of time to uh, work on a couple of different project teams, and there ended up being a person from Taiwan who was pretty attuned to the U.S. He had lived in the U.S. for a little bit, and this guy, this executive that I know, ended up just kind of connecting with him, and he didn't sort of, you know, shake hands and say, would you be my formal mentor? <laughs> but he yeah. did, like, you know, ask the guy maybe for a drink or you know would you come and chat and ask him some questions and then the guy was receptive to it and sort of over time they built this relationship gotcha talking with Andy Malinsky here so the some part of what you do is you deal with a lot of multinational companies or people that invariably deal with people in across different cultures and I'm curious yeah. as um, as to what some of the mistakes you've seen that managers make when doing cross-culture training yeah, it's a good question. I, one of the biggest mistakes, I think, is just is sort of what I mentioned at the outset about differences. I think people are obsessed with differences. Um, and I think there are two dangers of that. Um, well, first of all, by the way, understanding cultural differences is important. I don't want to minimize it, right? But there's, there's, two, there's two problems with just focusing only on differences. Number one... Um, the real challenge a lot of people have isn't just knowing the differences. It's being able to adjust their behavior in light of those differences. So it misses the whole part about how challenging it can be to act outside your comfort zone. And that usually is a big challenge people face, not just understanding the differences on some intellectual level. Uh-huh. I think the second, second big mistake about just focusing on differences is that it ignores similarities. And I think that when people are so fixated and oriented on differences, when you 
think about culture, you immediately think about differences, right? Yeah. But the thing is, is that the way that you create bonds across cultures is often to think about similarities, right? Mm-hmm. You're from you're from Nigeria, right? Yeah. You're from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. from the U.S., but I love soccer, European football. You might too, and so maybe we bond around that. Definitely That's do. Le- that's yeah. a similarity. That's not a difference. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think I think it's important. Like I think a big mistake is to is to focus solely on differences for the reasons that I just mentioned. Yeah, a lot of what we talk about at UID is, is finding your connectors. And for me, like you said, it, it was it was I found three. It was sports, um, geography, and pop culture. Um, I can always. My, my favorite sports are, you know, you mentioned basketball, football, you mentioned football, soccer, I guess, depending on how you, you call it. So the both types of football, tennis, and, uh, and a basketball, and I can usually find conversations around that. And then if it's not that, I could go to geography just because I always knew all the countries and capitals. I usually just mentioned cities there, and it, it somehow makes uh, conversations easier or breaks the ice. Or I could just mention something with pop culture just with you know hey did you see what happened with you know Bieber or something I don't know what was it? Uh, something like that and then it always something like that but uh, like you said it's at the core we're all people yes we do have cultural differences but there are also ways that you can find a way to connect with someone across any culture if you really you know taking what you said earlier about observing culture mentors and just not focusing on just what's different about you and and that to me is what i call the berlin wall when people put too much emphasis on the difference it yes sends to to just make you think one way this is my way or that way and then you never really have that collaboration that you want yeah i completely agree with that yeah okay okay um but there are times when and you talk about cultural differences interfering with your time. What do you mean by that? Um, that 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 piece came. Uh, that was a Harvard Business Review article that I wrote about about, um, about um, cultural differences in terms of time and timing, and how some people uh, might treat deadlines very differently, for mm-hmm. instance, or they might treat or they they might treat um, uh, <coughs> timeliness in a very different way like in terms of coming to a meeting or something right, like that right. so you can imagine how frustrating and difficult it can be when people who have a very sort of structured orientation towards time encounter someone who comes from a culture where time is just simply not as important like the pure focus on time mm-hmm. might not be as important um uh it's funny i i used to do a um exercise in one of my mba classes where i introducing wonder from bluehost.com Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. had people take out a piece of paper and write 
you know, what do you do on a typical day? Just a simple question like that. And, and the Americans, and, or people from like Germany or Switzerland, would always like write a very linear uh, description of their typical day. Like, I get up at this time, I do this, then this, then this, then this, right? Very linear. And people from other cultures didn't necessarily answer that same general question in a linear description. They might sort of talk about the relationships that they had during that day or the general activities, but without putting a, you know, linear spin on it. Like, you know, focusing on, you know, exact constriction of time, this, 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 this. And so I think that's, you see that a lot in a lot of organizations too. People feel that uh, they have different orientations towards time. And the problem is, is that, you know, that can, that can create ill will and negative feelings if there's not a way to deal with it. So that's, that's kind of what I meant by that, that, that culture impacts so many things and impacts behavior. It impacts how we express emotions. It impacts how we think. And it yeah. can also impact uh, our views of time. No, and and the reason I brought that up is because in Nigeria and you know it, uh, generally a lot of African countries we call African time Nigerian time, yeah. and that just necessarily means it's later than normal. Uh, I know in some yeah, South American countries it's the same thing. People come in later, uh, depending on the country. But um, as someone who grew up everywhere, I always was taught to come in five minutes early, whatever. That's always I've been. And I think that's just because I've always adapted to the American culture because I was always going to American international school or this type of thing. And yeah. um, it was always interesting when I, you know, sometimes I go home and I, I can see my parents sometimes going with the Nigerian time and all that. And then it, it would get frustrating for me and I would have to always remind myself that, okay, look at where you are. This is not how it is. Um, and okay. uh, I, I just adapt. But the reason I, was, I wanted to bring that up was because as business professionals, right, and millennials and people in, in, in the business setting, how do you plan for meetings in these areas where, where the time is so in flux? I know. It's a really good question. I mean, there are, there are a bunch of different ways. I mean, it depends, depends if you're, you know, if you're organizing a meeting, you can just, you know, there are cultural norms. People come from different cultures, but you also have organization norms and group norms, right? You can sort of set the norm. I do that every single time I teach an MBA class. I say, listen, you know, my students, I have 75% international students. So like, mm. you know, seven or eight out of my 10, uh, 10 students are from foreign countries with all different conceptions of time. And when I walk into the classroom the first day, I say, listen, guys, you know, I know some of you are from Brazil. I know some of you are from Africa. I know some of you are from, you know, Germany. We're operating on Swiss time in this classroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I set... I set the norm. I say, I, you know, I get that there are cultural differences in time, but you're going to have to adapt. And there are consequences if you don't. And so I think to some degree, managers can do that as well. It, it makes it more challenging, though, when someone above you, someone who has power above you, has a different orientation towards time, right? You, you can't exactly tell someone who's got a lot more power than you do uh, how they should spend their time and how timely they should be. And so, you know, that gets pretty frustrating. I, I can tell you, uh, people in organizations, can find that pretty frustrating. Um, you know, sometimes they, I, I know one guy who, um, who ends up like uh, anticipating that someone's going to be late and then creates, like, make sure he has stuff to do, like activities he can do on his computer so that he's actually making use of the time that he feels that he's wasting when someone's much, you know, too late for a meeting. And he almost, he anticipates that and builds that into his own schedule. But of course, he's still frustrated by it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like what you said about setting that, that standard and norm. It could be, whether it's the email, the communication channel, and be like, this is, we are going to operate on this time, and this is the time that's going to start, and it's no later, not that. And I think that just sets, you know, it just makes them think, okay, fine, if I miss this, I know that this is on me. This is not something that they should have known. Um, 
I have, right. yeah, there's yeah. a, there's a, there's a guy I know, professor I know, uh, who actually closes the door. <laughs> it like, it's like at nine o'clock, let's say, if the class starts at nine, closes the door at nine, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not uh, there, you're not there. Sometimes you have to do that. Uh, <laughs> you honestly do. Okay, so let's say, um, the international students. That's that's just one thing that they they'll deal with. But another thing is obviously that as you're as a professor with mainly international students is fitting in socially, um, and and that's just understanding whatever goes on in the American culture beyond em- employment. What are some of the the difficulties you've noticed with the with the international students across the board, and um, how do you usually help them out? Socially, you know, I don't. I don't get to help out as much on the social front. Mm-hmm. I help more on the professional front. But mm-hmm. I think that uh, I think that language language ends up being a big issue there um, in terms of being able to bond across groups. I find that the international students who speak English the best are able to blend across groups uh, more than than others, or people who just are more open to it. Right? Okay. Some people feel much more comfortable in their little group mm-hmm. um, but I find that people who are a bit more adventurous and who can speak better English are able to adapt you know, more successfully and be part of the group you know, there's some students, it's not just students by the way, it's, it's like professionals professionals, yeah you know, some, sometimes when you, like I remember when I went abroad um, I went abroad twice the second time I went, I said to myself I am not just going to hang out with Americans <laughs> you know, like I made it an absolute goal that I was going to be able to blend and mix, mm-hmm. and that happens. True, that's also true for, for for professionals. Like oftentimes, you can go to another culture and you can live in a neighborhood or an area or a building or something that's sort of like an expat community, or you can blend more with locals. Right? There's all sorts of choices that you make and that you can make, and I find that that's a real individual decision. And you, you actually, my piece of advice on that is to actually think carefully about what you want to do. Yeah, you know, don't don't let it just happen to you. Think thoughtfully about it. Mm. Okay, okay. And, uh, well, one of the the really big things, big reasons I I like to do what I do with this cultural training is, I believe that you know in the year two thousand fifteen, it's the digital age, right? You also have people becoming more and more diverse, whether they know it or not. We have the the world is becoming more of a you know a global village, and I think it's it's. In order to help build the next set of global leaders, it's becoming increasingly important to understand how to communicate across cultures, whether it's bridging the culture divide or not. Um, I think this manifests themselves in in political atmospheres, um, professional atmospheres, social atmospheres. Do you think that cross-culture training needs to be shifted uh, in order to adapt to the best ways to help bridge culture divide, or do you think that we have a long way to go to get to where we need to be? Um, you mean in, in general? Like in general, in general, yeah. Training. Yeah. I think that I think a lot of times people go for low hanging fruit with uh, cross cultural training. So they'll go for the minimal possible. You know, oftentimes, and I've written about this too, and I've seen it in a lot of organizations. They'll go for the quick hit. You know, something that an HR, let's say, you know, let's say an executive makes some decision that they need to globalize, and then they pat, might even pass it down the chain to the HR department, and the HR department then looks, oftentimes, looks for some sort of package solution, some tiny package solution. And then they'll buy that tech package tidy solution. It might be some sort of computer program that their employees can go on to learn a bit about cultures. And then that's it. And the box is checked. And yes, 
cultural training has been done check you know i think i think that that's not it's not terrible it's not bad but i think it's in, in many cases it's insufficient because as i've said it's not just simply having some simple level of awareness about culture and cultural differences is, that's going to make people successful global leaders i think that's a you know it's a, it's a nice first small step but i think that training needs to be more um, experiential. Uh, it needs to help people learn how to adapt and adjust their behavior across cultures to develop global dexterity, not just global cultural knowledge. So I think that's the next frontier of, cro- of cross-cultural training. Gotcha. Yeah, experiential definitely takes it a whole different level because you get to really feel uncomfortable and feel comfortable and you also get to hear um, um, and experience kind of what it's like in, in foreign environments uh, without, yeah. you know, you know, it takes it beyond just a textbook or a computer. Yeah. So, you're, totally agree. yeah, now, so your life, Andy, um, talk about your background, why you, how you got to be so passionate, how many, you know, how did you get into this field, why traveling, you know, what was the road that led you here? Yeah, so I, um, I went abroad in college. I grew up in the United States. I did not have a, a multicultural background at all. I was what you'd call a monocultural. <laughs> I never said I never stepped foot out of the country. Um, when I when I was in college, I spent uh, I, I studied in Spain, and it completely opened my eyes to the experience of being in another culture. I guess I was very sensitive to it, and I you know sometimes even one experience. If you have a, if you sort of really think a lot and, and, and leverage that experience and have a, learn a ton from that, it doesn't mean you have to have 15 experiences. You can you can learn. It, it's it's how, how much you take out of the experiences that you have that matters. And so that that really opened my eyes as it made me passionate about culture. I learned. I took a bunch of languages in col in, in in college. After college, I decided I wanted to go back, so I went to France and I worked for a French company. And I had another experience, and that was the one where I decided I absolutely needed to bond with locals. I couldn't hang out with Americans. I had to like really bond and so and, and create connections across cultures. And from there, I traveled quite a bit in my twenties. I would say uh, mostly to Europe, Western Europe. Um, and you know, since then, I've then I've now found um, the opportunity in the United States to do a, a lot of cross-cultural training. You know, as I said my world in the United States here, my little world is very, very international. So I've found almost like a global village where I am. I, you know, as I've gotten older and, you know, I've got kids and stuff, I don't have as many opportunities to live abroad or work abroad necessarily, but I am able through technology, through the experience of travel, and also through, mostly through my workplace to have a tremendously international life and experience even, even here. So that, that's really what brought me to this topic um, and why I'm so passionate about it. Awesome, awesome, man. I, I love that, you know, you, you you had a series of intentional travels there because you, you, you let your curiosity take you to some places and then you just um, increased your knowledge in these areas. And the, and the thing about cross-cultural training is that, you know, the more you learn, you, the more you see that you don't know, but that's part of the process and that makes, yeah. it, that makes it even fun. Um, okay, so... Uh, we're getting ready to wind up soon, but I've got a couple questions here. Do you, what would you say about people who want to get into cross-cultural field? What are some of the steps that they can take um, and to get into this field? And, um, and when you answer that, I'll ask the second question. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, I think 
have experiences and, and, and be really thoughtful about your experiences. As I said, it doesn't, you don't have to live 15 different places. You just, you just have to be very thoughtful and reflective about your experiences. What's, what's amazing nowadays is that everyone can be an author. Everyone can be a videographer. Everyone can be a journalist to some degree, right? So the, the world is open in terms, of, um, in terms of media and social media. So I think that the barriers to entry are much lower. Now, of course, that means that there are a lot of people out there. But, uh, but I think that the barriers to entry are much, much, much lower and really plug away at it. I think there are lots of interesting organizations that exist out there. There are a lot of communities, formal and informal communities. Um, and I think that, you know, just really plugging away, doing smart work, uh, whatever you happen to post or write or do, make it of the highest quality you can. And I think you'll get far. Okay. Okay. And, and you mentioned digital media. I completely agree. It, it's made the world a lot flatter. Also allows for a lot of you know good and bad things. So yeah. how how can one brand themselves, so to speak, uh, as a I think, yeah? Artist? I think that that has to be off. That has to be authentic as well. You know, I, I think that you have to make sure that if you brand your first of all your your brand has to reflect both the value that you, you can add to other people, but also something that you actually genuinely know about right <laughs> so so there has to be some substance behind it but i you know in terms of branding yourself i think that i think i think all the all the sort of conventional steps apply you know do excellent work if you're going to tweet stuff out if you're going to post stuff on facebook on instagram or wherever it is you want it to be a really high quality because it's not just getting stuff out there it's getting stuff out there that's going to last that's going to have some weight to it right that people care about that people want to pay attention to you and follow so i, I really think in the end despite all the chatter uh despite all the self-promotion despite all the tweets and the the posts and everything i think quality wins the day yeah value promotion and I mean, that's how i found your work actually i was i was looking for more um insights from cross-culture training and i started reading like five of your articles on Harvard. <laughs> i was like wait this is the same same person <laughs> so, awesome. right. yeah no so i i think i think it's the quality that definitely does because you know it was a search on cross-culture training managers and then boom you know that happened so okay we like to ask our, our guests this, how do you use your difference to make a difference? How do I use my difference to make a difference? Mm-hmm. Um, very good question. Uh, hmm, I've never been asked that before. It's just, that's, that's just the perfect answer. I, lo- I love stumping the guest. But this is, <laughs> the, this is, but this is the thing, because you always talk about your di- how to not focus on differences. So I'm, I'm curious how, how you use what's unique about yourself uh, to make a, an impact or a difference. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I guess I guess what you know. I feel it's a little over. I don't want to be too self-promotional, but I, I sort of feel like I think what I'm best at. Um, I've always found is is being able to take complex ideas and make them simple and digestible and understandable for people. Um, and I feel that that's something that I am actually uniquely good at. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I try to do that as much as I can in every area, whether it's speaking on a podcast, whether it's writing a Harvard Business Review article, whether it's writing a book, whether it's writing academic articles. I try my best to, to or consulting. Uh, I try my best to, and I think I'm pretty good at, in my difference in a sense, using my difference to make a difference, is to be able to, to really get to the heart of something that can be pretty complex and to present it in a way that is really understandable for people so that they can actually take action. 
No, I think it's good. You 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 make you help break things down to simple way, and you, um, I can definitely attest to this when I read your articles. Is that you make it so you always talk about experiential. You put us right there. You give us you know right examples that we can actually use. And you make it applicable to our everyday lives. So um, I think that's I think it's a skill. That's definitely a skill. Where can we find out more about you, your book, your articles, you know, other things you're doing? Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe you'll you'll post some information. Yeah. But uh, but I've got. I've got a web page. I've got um, uh, the Amazon page to Global Dexterity, which is my book. I've got um, my LinkedIn. I'm happy to you know connect with people on Twitter, of course, on Twitter. Um, yeah, so lots of different places, all the all the typical places. <laughs> right. I know. I'll make sure I put all this in the show notes for sure. So it'll be your LinkedIn, Twitter, links, and uh, links to the book. So we'll make sure we get more people, um, you know, onto what you're doing, and hopefully, um, you know, get more people culturally aware about the world. Yeah. That's awesome, too. This is really, this is actually a great conversation. I've done a lot of podcasts, but this is definitely one of my favorites. So, thank uh, you. well, hey, thanks. Uh, that's that's <laughs> great. That's high praise coming from you. So, I, I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate you coming on and uh, and spending some time. I know you're pretty busy, so thank you so much. Thanks a lot. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to use your difference to make a difference, as well as for show notes, head over to www.uidmag.com. Till next time, go out and make an impact in your world. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.